Namaste, everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host, Vishal <clears throat> Mehra. So today's discussion uh, is going to be titled The Horse and the Chariot in the AIT-OIT Debate. I have given a different title to the podcast. I have called it The Horse and the Rigveda. Now, let me give everyone a brief background about why we have decided to conduct this discussion. So as you guys remember, a few days ago, I had a very interesting podcast where Abhijit Ayer Mitra had given a presentation on the evolution of the war horse. Now, as we were doing that uh, presentation and we were going through the discussion, many questions were uh, you know, coming up in my head and a lot of uh, live viewers are also asking some questions because I think the clarity when it comes to the horse and uh, the value of the horse and many peripheral subjects about the horse actually there is a lot of confusion about it and very little knowledge about the subject and as always people started asking oh if Abhijit is saying XYZ and in fact Abhijit and I had made a passing comment about it in the podcast too that what Abhijit was saying actually had nothing to do with the Aryan invasion Aryan migration or the out of India discussion or debate but still, a lot of people had asked me questions and that, that is when I thought, you know what, I think it is time to have a detailed discussion on this subject. And, and, and I'll give you a brief background why, because even when it comes to the RN invasion discussion or the RN invasion or migration hypothesis, one of the major factors that the RN invasion and the RN migration side presents as the evidence for their hypothesis is the horse. So whether it is David Anthony and in chapter number 10 in his book, The Horse, the Wheel and Language, and many other books that have been written by uh, experts on the on the pro-AIT or uh, AMT side, they do mention the horse a lot. So I was like, you know, why not we create a podcast around the use of the words of the or the use of the horse or the chariot in the relation to the Rig Veda. And that's when I reached out to Srikant sir and I requested him. That sir, can we talk about this? And Shrikant sir was kind enough and he said, I don't do a presentation. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, Shrikant sir has been very kind uh, to the Charvak podcast. He's always been very, very open to uh, coming on the podcast and sharing his views. So, so sir, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast once again. Thank you. Okay, so, so guys, today again is going to be another presentation. So we will start the presentation now. So I'm going to bring up uh the uh, the presentation uh slide up so sir uh can we go ahead with the presentation now can i bring the first screen up yeah see uh the title as he you pointed out is the horse yeah. and the chariot in the ait oit debate and the subtitle is the utter irrelevance of the two factors which have been inflated into big issues that is the actual uh, uh, uh in short the essence of this talk so you can go to the first screen, first uh, slide. Sure. Okay, sir. Yeah. Now, recently, you know, since the last 15, 20 years, we have the phenomenon of geneticists trying to trace the movement of the Indo-European languages by identifying certain genes or haplogroups as Aryan or Indo-European. Now, this is full of, even if you accept this, this is full of flaws because, you know, if you identify Aryans with uh, the R1A1 haplogroup, you find that all the other Aryan branches like Greeks, Iranians, Germans and all have very little, a very small percentage of R1A1 in them. Whereas in India, even the Dravidian speakers, the Manipuri speakers who belong to different language families, they have higher uh, percentages of R1A1. So how in what sense it can be considered a representative of the 
Indo-European languages, I do not know. Secondly, when they say step DNA, now you know all the ancient DNA which has been analyzed in India, including the uh, recent uh, Rakhi Gadi specimen, for example, none of them have what is called step DNA. So where is the first step DNA that they have found? It is in the Swat Valley, that is the very northernmost part of Pakistan, to the north of the Punjab, from where anyone entering from Central Asia will be entering into the Indian subcontinent. Now, there they have found the step uh, DNA apparently for the first time in 1100 BC. 1100 BC and beyond that to the south, far to the south of, the, of that is the area of the Harappan civilization and the Vedic civilization. So uh, that should have no relevance to the Harappan or Vedic civilization and which anyway, according to the scholars, was completed by around 1000 BC. In 1000 BC, the Vedic people was spread out from Haryana to Afghanistan and there was no trace of any non-Aryan or non-Indo-European people in that area. And no, even the rivers in that area had purely Aryan or Indo-European names. So that is uh, 1000 BC. So if they were entering through from the north in 1100 BC, how could that have any relevance to the Rigveda or to the Vedic culture? Nevertheless, the uh, geneticists get away with it. You know, in their actual data, you see that 1100 BC in Swat Valley is the earliest uh, DNA that they have found, step DNA. But when they are describing it in a summary, they say that uh, Aryans entered in, in 2000 BC. But how does that uh, 1100 BC uh, DNA show that they entered from the north in 2000 BC and it spread out from Haryana to Afghanistan by 1000 BC. So you see, all they're doing is reiterating the original this thing, just citing some kind of genetic data which may have no connection with the actual Aryan migration theory. This is the same thing is being done about uh, in respect of horses and chariots. Long before this genetic uh, discussion started taking place, right from the beginning, Aryans or Indo-Europeans have been associated with the horse and the chariot. And this is equally untenable, this phenomenon, because no language family can be associated with a particular animal, a particular plant or anything like that, that wherever that plant originated or that animal originated, that is where that language family originated. This is a kind of logic which is not applied anywhere else. It is applied only in respect of the Indo-European language family. Now, certain books pursuing this approach, such as David W. Anthony's The Horse, The Wheel and the Language, have almost acquired a gospel status and a massive and fanatical cult following to the extent that Kushal himself has been constantly telling me you write a review of this book because that is the main book. But after I read through the book, I could see nothing in it which required a reply because all that he is showing is that the horse originated in the steppes. That is a fact. I mean, we know that pepper originated in South India. The ancient Romans used to use pepper and uh, Indian spices to such an extent more than 2000 years ago that uh, there are many Roman historians lamented the fact that Roman wealth was being, uh, you know, uh, they were losing their wealth because in the exporting, in importing uh, spices from India and they were impoverishing themselves. So uh, does this prove that the Romans went from India because they were using spices? So actually there is no connection with any of this. Nevertheless, 
and what david anthony has shown is just that that horses originated in the steppes something which we need not have read his book to find out it is a something which is perfectly true and we accept it so i don't know what part of his book i am supposed to answer but i will answer the subject itself the uh, subject of horses chariots and vedic culture and indo europeans now it is time to examine this issue thoroughly and separate the you know non essential parts from the essential parts and it just because you know these all these scholars confidently assert that the horse proves the indo uh, aryan immigration into india theory and then there is a herd mentality everyone just quotes one of the other including indians including people who may not like the aryan immigration theory or invasion theory even they quote this these books and say yes yes see he has proved that is a very important issue so we will go to the issue now and see whether it is really important now before going to the specifics of the horse chariot syndrome in general and in respect of india see there are two things the horse and the chariot in general and in respect of india now we, uh, as i just pointed out we must first realize that this dogma of linking animals and objects with linguistic identities and homelands is not tenable at all and uh, just as romans were addicted to spices and indians use potatoes and chilies in their uh, cuisine if you can you imagine indian food without batata vadas samosas uh, uh, puri bhaji or uh, you know masala dosa all of which use potatoes and chilies and yet no one uses this to prove that uh, indians came from the americas because all these are american products but in the case of uh, these, this logic is not applied to romans and indians because we have centuries of recorded history which testifies to the true situation we know that romans were in rome long before they imported spices from india we know that indians were in india long before uh, uh, potatoes and chilies came from america brought by the portuguese so because of that no one makes such allegations but in respect of the vedic people the records are not so specific and detailed and therefore the narrative has become susceptible to all kinds of misrepresentations of course when we examine the data as we will see the picture changes now before going into the specifics specifics of the indian case some very basic aspects of animal and vehicle associations must be noted with reference to the horse and the chariot firstly the five stages of horse used by humans recently as uh, um, kushal pointed out you have heard the talk by abhijit which refers to you know mounted horses now uh, that is one of the stages second is cart versus chariot the three aspects of animal vehicle development and the third is the northern equid zone versus the southern equid zone so to move on the five stages of which of use of horses by human beings and usually of many animals but specifically we are talking about the horse firstly it was used for meat milk and hide they were just captured from the wild kept in uh, uh, herded together and they were used for eating their meat for their milk and for their hide that is leather now secondly when vehicles came into being carts and chariots later then they were used for transport in some areas they they were specialized because of their uh, high speed they were used for racing then after that they were used for war and finally they the vehicles became side sidelined 
means they continued even to this day we have vehicles with horses but uh, mounted riding started so around say 1000 bc or so in the steppes now the first stage for horses that is meat milk and hide was restricted to the steppes and the last stage came into being only around 1000 bc so we are not concerned with those two stages we are only concerned with the second third and fourth stage that is when we are discussing indo european and vedic culture now cart versus chariot the three aspects of animal vehicle development now when vehicles were invented first maybe man pulled it the vehicles himself one once he invented wheeled carts originally he may invent have invented small ones which he himself used to pull because it was easier to transport goods from one place to another rather than carrying it then uh, so uh the in popular perception there is a distinct difference between a cart and a chariot which is why all this disc discussion is there about uh, chariots aryan chariots because people feel a cart is a clumsy heavy vehicle pulled mainly by oxen or animals other than horses maybe by donkeys or anything else and it has four solid wheels whereas a chariot is a light and speedy vehicle meant for speed that's why the vehicle itself is light so that the horse does not have too much burden to pull and it is pulled by horses and has two wheels which are spoked wheels not solid wheels spoked wheels lead to very high speed in the vehicle movement now people trying to tr this uh, these two words as we use them today in english people tend to transpose them into the past and decide that um, even in the past there were these two clear distinctions between a cart and a chariot as i have just described them so they impose that meaning on the old words such as ratha which is what we are concerned with here ratha in the rigveda people decide that it means a chariot and since ratha is found throughout the rigveda it means that the aryans right from the beginning of the rigvedic period were already using chariots by which they mean horse drawn chariots with two spoked wheels that is an assumption which is just taken because of the word ratha which is interpreted from the present day interpretation actually the development of animal vehicles involved three distinctly different lines of development which did not take place in tandem with each other and we therefore we have a very wide range of vehicle types thus what are the three particular factors which led to this there are many other factors of course there are uh, for example um bridles and uh, uh blinkers and whatever other things are used but uh, and the carts themselves had different uh, other uh, technical aspects of them te technical parts but the main three aspects which uh, we think of as a opposing oppose between carts and wheel uh, carts and chariots the first is the type of wheels earlier there were solid wheels and later there were spoked wheels which led to very great speed second is the number of wheels earlier there were four wheels and later there were two wheels especially for the war chariot now this is not always so because in if you see even in uh, sumeria among the sumerians even some of the earliest vehicles and in the indus valley as well some of the earliest vehicles also had two wheels nevertheless this is the general perception that four wheels is the older clumsier vehicle and two wheels is the faster war chariot and thirdly what is the animal which was pulling that vehicle earlier there were oxen onegers and asses 
and later there were horses so these are the three development from the old to the new however there is never a stage it isn't that all three you know converted from the first stage to the second stage simultaneously so we can find all kinds of things we find solid wheels but only two wheels and pulled by horses or we find spoked wheels with four wheels pulled by oxen and uh, onagers and asses so there are all kinds of combinations because these three developments took place separately and in separate uh, periods they did not take place simultaneously so that except that the war chariot that we generally see in say mythological films or in greek films and all that and or even we see in uh, uh, pictures of sumerian and uh, other such thing they generally tended to be what presently we think of as a chariot versus cart that is horses with two spoked wheels but in spite of that we still find all kinds of combinations of the old and new features for example if you see bullock carts on the street they have usually two spoked wheels but they are pulled by bullocks and then there were horse drawn post chaises and royal, royal chariots with four spoked wheels and even today as in the indus valley even today toy ve vehicles often have solid wheels unless some have spoked wheels some have actual rubber tire wheels but in general if you see the most of the uh, toy vehicles even today have solid wheels although one will think that one would think that solid wheels are something long past from the extreme uh, primitive past yet even today they, you find toy vehicles with them so we cannot have a dogmatic interpretation of old words without corroborating data showing that uh, our interpretation is correct next now third is the northern equid zone versus the southern equid zone if you look at a map of eurasia you will see that eurasia is divided into a north and a south by huge mountain ranges we have the himalayas ahead of that to the north of afghanistan there are the rivers and as they go ahead you get the caucasus mountains so you see there is a continuous mountain there are continuous mountain ranges from the east to the west which divide eurasia into a north and a south now the northern equid zone from ukraine in the west that is to the east easternmost parts of europe to mongolia in the east and in the south to central asia above the mountains this is the northern equid zone and this is the home of both the species main species of horse that is of equid animals firstly the horse which is equus ferus caballus and secondly the uh, it also had uh, that that zone also has onagers and wild asses whereas the second the southern zone which covers two distinct civilizational areas west asia and india it only has species of onagers and wild asses it does not have it does not have uh, wild horses now basically many of the same features apply to both the areas that is to west asian civilization as well as indian civilization but this fact is not recognized because the vital difference between the two areas is that west asia has detailed written records from every period and pictorial material representations of its equid history at all stages while india does not so as i said before when there is no actual recorded uh, evidence people are free to make up their own stories like uh, before uh, ashokan pillars we don't have any readable and datable written inscriptions anywhere in india that is just 300 bc or so so that gave uh, the uh, ait uh, supporters 
full freedom to postulate postulate any date that they wanted for the aryan immigration or migra uh, invasion or whatever it is now because when there are no written record this facilitates extraneous interpretation based on other factors which are not really relevant assumptions and misrepresentations on every point so that is what happened in respect of india otherwise india and west asia the same thing features are there cards the use of onegars and ices and finally the use uh, and oxen and finally the use of horses now the detailed recorded evidence from west asia shows that they had wheeled vehicles from 3500 to 3350 bc are the oldest wheeled vehicles which are found in west asia the sumerian people now these were originally pulled by oxen later also by onegars and wild asses horses came on the scene after 2000 bc in west asia before that for 1500 or 1300 years whatever it is the uh, vehicles the wheeled vehicles were pulled by onegars wild asses and oxen now india also the same situation prevails independently because india also had wheeled vehicles from 3500 bc likewise they were initially pulled by oxen the big difference is so far as horses is concerned the big difference is that west asia was separated by anatolia and above that the caucasian mountains from the northern equid zone so you see west asian culture at the most its direct contacts were with anatolia beyond the caucasus they did not hardly had contacts with the steppes directly india on the other hand the vedic harappan area uh, civilization extended right to afghanistan and even into central asia even the geneticists admit that you know uh, the indian genes are found in uh, right up to central asia even genetically if that is what you uh, people want and even otherwise harappan artifacts have been found in central asia so the uh, this central asia means already we are into a uh, past afghanistan into the northern equid zone and that uh, so this vedic harappan area was connected directly with the northern equid zone in central asia and it formed a cultural continuum with that area whereas west asia you know was already separated with uh, with uh, anatolia in the middle having a different culture above that were the caucasus mountains and above that was the steppe zone so there was no direct contact whereas in india there was a direct link now apart from the weird idea that horses and indo europeans are somehow identical entities you know it is all as if horses spoke indo european languages or else that uh, indo european speakers somehow have horse genes horse dna in them since that is not so all the other ideas and anything that you say to prove that uh, you know connect them say that horses are from the steps therefore the indo europeans are also from the steps that is a that requires a very big leap of imagination and belief so many such ideas dominate the aryan horse and chariot narrative which is all propagated by everyone but they all revolve around the following two main ideas first is indo european speakers first introduced the ashwa equals to horse into non euro indo european india that is what whether it is dravidian india or whatever from the steppes through central asia around or after 2000 bc secondly indo european speakers also introduced the ratha equals to spoked wheel chariot into india and these chariots are common throughout the rigvedic period and central to the rigvedic identity that is what people always say they uh, often see how many times 
Ratha is mentioned throughout the Rigveda. That shows that they knew the Ratha very well. Now, they did know the Ratha very well, but what is the Ratha is the main question. Now, we will examine what the actual data and evidence says about all these different assumptions. These are all the assumptions which have been supporting the AIT. Now, the main signature argument is that horse bones are not found in India before post Harappan times. They say that horse bones are found in India only after the Harappan civilization end ended and they are found first in the Northwest only after Aryans entered into India after 2000 BC. See, this, this argument is the main signature argument about horse bones not being found. You will see that everyone states this argument when they have nothing else to say. Now, this is the most fake and fraudulent argument of them all. And yet it is the main and most popular one discussed thread by, by all the participants in the debate. Means India, OIT supporters are also busy trying to show, yes, yes, there was the horse. And they, of course, we have to show it. But what they, they do is they do not ask the opposite side to provide their evidence. They are busy providing their evidence, own evidence for the OIT. Well, the AIT supporters simply stonewall this evidence and they keep on maintaining that there is no evidence of horse bones before 2000 BC. Now, it is a heads I win, tails you lose argument by the AIT side and it involves the highest amount of one-sidedness and special pleading more than any other argument almost in the debate. Because what they are saying is that there are no horse bones in the Harappan period. This proves that there were no horses in India. Even after the Harappan period, there are no horse bones. But it makes no difference because even if horse bones are not found, it means nothing since we know from written records that were, there were horses in India. Now we know from the Rigvedic records also that there were horses in India in the Rigvedic period. But they do not accept that because they do not accept that the Rigvedic culture is identical with the Harappan culture. They date it after 2000 BC. So forcibly it is made part of their uh, paradigm. Now, this horse bones argument itself is a totally fake and fraudulent one. Now, I'm giving uh, all this evidence. Now, I will not read out all this because it is there in the PowerPoint and anyone can read it at their leisure. I will just point out what is the main thing. And this is by Edwin Bryant in his uh, famous volume in which he examined the arguments of both the sides. Now, he points out that the earliest date for the domesticated horse in India is 4500 BC from Bagor, Rajasthan at the base of the Aravali Hills. Rajasthan in 4500 BC. In Baluchistan, which is at the very south, to the south of the uh, Vedic area actually, there also from uh, yeah, this uh, horse bones have been found in uh, Pre-Harappan levels, that is not even Harappan, but pre-Harappan levels. Then near Allahabad, from a place called Mahagara, they have found horse bones 2265 BC to 1480 BC at all the levels. Six different samples from different levels have provided this. Then horse bones are found in Karnataka in the south in 1300 BC. Now, however you bring the Aryans into India, if the horse bones had already reached Karnataka by 1300 BC, which is of course their post-Aryan period according to them also, even then how could they reach Haryana, uh, Karnataka by 1300 BC? 
but that is not all in all the indus sites where these people continuously and repeatedly insist that there are no horse bones horse bones have been reported by all the archaeologists it is not i or some other uh, oit person who has no archaeological uh, expertise it is not we who are saying this it is all the archaeologists themselves in their all their uh, archaeological uh, diggings and uh, uh, reports they have reported that horses are found even from mohenjadaro harappa ropar and lothal that is whenever you think of it you think of mohenjadaro harappa and lothal the three main areas from all these areas horses have been found now horse bones have been found now mortimer wheeler who was the first one who spoke about indra being uh, you know accused of the attacking the and destroying the harappan civilization he also identified a horse figurine and he accepted these are his words it is likely enough that camel horse and ass were in fact all a familiar feature of the indus caravan so horse he accepted was a common feature then macke in 1938 identified a clay model of the animal at mohenjadaro so it is not only bones there are models also then pigot reports a horse figurine from periano gunda in the indus valley dated somewhere between early dynastic and akkadian times now he is giving a, a mesopotamian chronology not bc but uh, whatever now bones for Har from harappa which were previously thought to be belong to the domestic ass now they have been examined and attributed to a small horse additional evidence has been found from all these sites kalibangan lothal surkotada malwan gumla swat valley pirak kuntasi and rangpur so you see there is a big list of places where horse bones have been found also dhavalikar has found it at kayatha in madhya pradesh in all the chalcolithic levels from 2450 to 2000 bc also there is a distinct horse figure in a chest set found at lothal and of course uh, uh, in kayatha not only the horse bones also a terracotta figure in of the horse now uh, also you know now this people will not accept because uh, no proper dating has been done of it but at uh, places like kathotia in madhya pradesh you find cave paintings with spoke wheels uh, people are sitting on uh, vehicles with spoke wheels now i don't know whether uh, these uh, cave paintings can be equally uh, properly dated or not at least i don't know if anyone has done this but i'm just mentioning it in passing now are all these archaeologists and scholars liars and frauds now those who insist that there are no horse bones they get away with simply stonewalling the evidence they just ignore it completely and since they hold the reins of power they hold they write the textbooks they write the scholarly reports they hold the international conferences so and they just continue to parrot this claim and of course in india also it is the leftists and uh, other such people who control all the academia all the departments of history archaeology and everything so they also continue to parrot this claim without any you know examination of these claims they neither prove they can go to each of these places examine the bones and prove that they are not horse bones but they don't they just continue to say there are no horse bones now however one prominent case forced their attention bones from surkotada in kutch now here some horse bones had been identified by two archaeologists jp joshi and ak sharma dated from 2100 to 
700 BC in Kutch. Remember, not uh, in uh, Swat Valley or Central Asia or the northernmost parts of the uh, Harappan or Vedic area, but in Kutch, 2100 to 1700 BC. Now they reported these, and of course everyone refused to accept it. But Sandor Bokeni, who was supposed to be the uh, Hungarian archaeologist, and he was supposed to be one of the world's leading horse specialists. He had come to India at the time. He examined these bones. Before that, you know, one uh, uh, horse specialist, Medo, had said, "No, they are not horse bones. They are some other equid animal." But he had not examined the actual bones. He had seen photographs of it, and from that, he had given his usual, you know. He didn't even have to think of it. That answer was already ready. But Bokeni, Bokeni came and he actually uh, studied the bones and he said that they are indeed the bones of the domesticated Equus cabellus. The occurrence of true horse, he said, because of the and he gave the actual technical details also because of the upper and lower cheek and teeth and all, all sorts of such things. So here was something which the You know, uh, scholars. It is he was not an Indian uh, horse specialist. Remember that he was not an Indian archaeologist. He was a Hungarian archaeologist, and one he was accepted as one of the world's leading horse specialists. Now, Bibi Lal also, it is the same thing. All the time, you know, the leftists have been identifying him as a top archaeologist from India. But once he dis- examined the Aryan invasion theory and rejected it, now they call him all sorts of names. Unfortunately, they couldn't do the same thing for Bakuni because he's not an Indian, and he was acknowledged as the world's leading horse specialist. So they were really stumped. So again, uh, next. So again, they, it went back to Meadow, who had originally said from the photograph. So Meadow, of course, didn't want to be proved wrong. So he said, "No, no, it is. Uh, it can't be the bones of a horse. And anyway, horse bones are difficult to distinguish from other equid species such as donkeys and onagers." and before bokeni could reply that is our uh, bad luck he died nevertheless he never took back what he said and what he said was based on technical points which he had elaborated but so you see this one crisis which had come up for the aryan invasion theory supporters it died out along with bokeni but what meadow said remember this cuts both ways if the bones of the horse horse cannot be distinguished from the bones of donkeys and onagers then bones of donkeys and onagers are found all over the place i suppose so how do you then quibble that they are not horse bones if they cannot it is they are difficult to distinguish then why are you distinguishing them and how are you maintaining as a dogma that horse bones were not found so and uh, uh, as he said they cannot be distinguished easily because wild horses and i think you all have heard this before also but it is an accepted uh, part of horse history that wild horses till a thousand or so years ago were not much bigger in size than onagers or donkeys now you see huge horses you know in races or pulling chariots or uh, uh, high highly bred horses which are very tall but till slightly over uh, certainly in the beginning they were just a bit over 4 feet as it is uh, if you check any uh, western uh, history of horses also you will find this now all and although they were the same size of onagers once they were introduced into west asia or india they replaced the onagers because 
they were superior to onegers as pullers of chariots although they were of the same size their bones must have been the same etc but they had certain other qualities which made them replace onegers so it is not that uh, you look at the present day horse which is huge in size and a small donkey or oneger and you say ha they are completely different you can't uh, distinguish between them so easily so you see the present size of horses has nothing to do with the horses of 2000 uh, bc or even 1000 bc or even uh, 500 bc because it is just around 1000 years ago that they were developed and bred by uh, people turks mongols and others and made so uh, the present horses that we see afterwards the arabs europeans also continued to breed and interbreed the horse until we have the present horses so we cannot uh, look back at uh, transpose the present horse into the past now this is so far as the horse bones in the harappan areas is uh, concerned but now how long are we going to continue to be on the defensive all the time they make accusations and we have to answer them for example we have the um, example of the saraswati river for 200 years every single western i in my book i have given a list which covers practically everyone max miller or archaeologists indologists sanskrit scholars vedic scholars every single one of them accepted that the saraswati of the rigveda was the ghaggar hakra river until say 20 25 30 years ago we started writing our books and promoting the out of india theory and examining the aryan invasion theory then they suddenly realized that the saraswati being identified with the vedic uh, river saraswati i mean being identified with the ghaggar hakra is fatal to their theory because the ghaggar hakra started dying out or slowly drying up after 1900 bc and the rigveda is composed on the banks of the saraswati and throughout the old rigveda certainly it is a powerful river which is described in glowing terms as a very powerful entity so how can it be that the aryans came into india after the river had started drying up and then they wrote glowing eulogies to the river so once this argument came into being they suddenly realized we have to backtrack on this and after that you will notice in the last 10 15 years all the writers whether it is witzel or the indian leftist scholars or it is all the uh, what we can say the sold out journalists and uh, in india all of them write articles saying that uh, saraswati is actually a river of afghanistan and today it is the hindutva forces which are trying to identify it with the ghaggar hakra if they can mix speak such a big lie that big lie can be repeated by all the people by you see on the internet see on twitter see on facebook see in books and newspapers people repeat this lie without blinking an eyelid and without feeling the slightest shame because if you examine what the scholars have been saying since 200 years they have all been saying that the ghaggar hakra is the saraswati and suddenly these people decided one day that it is not and uh, they are, uh, because they realize it is convenient to the out of india theory but not only have they decided that they are going back into the past and lying about what the earlier indologists have spoken i don't know how many of you have read 1984 by george orwell in that there is a department where you know that uh, hero is in that department and his duty is to go back into the past and change the records some it can be anything 
25 years ago, how many tons of wheat were produced? So he gets a government circular saying that it says 5,000. You change it to 7,000. So he changes it. So, you know, you have to, you can change the past documents and new history can be created. That is what these AIT scholars are doing in respect of the Saraswati River and now also in respect of the horse bones argument. Because, we, you know, and what we do is we just react to them. We just keep on defensively, you know, bleating. No, 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 it is not true. See, see, there are horse bones in Harappa. See, there are, of course, we have to show that. We have to show that, but we can't stop there. We have to go ahead and ask them for the other evidence, their evidence. If they are claiming that the Aryans came into India after 2000 BC, they composed the Rigveda after 1500 BC, then it is time for them to produce the horse bones all over India from 1500 to 1000 BC, from 1000 BC to 500 BC, from 500 BC to say, 100 BC and then after that also it is their duty to prove but no there are no such horse bones there also but still we don't ask them for their proof we just accept that yes horse bones started appearing after the Aryans came so on the one hand we have horse bones during the Harappan period all over India not in thousands and lakhs but in a few places but very distinct horse bones and they refuse to see that evidence and after the Aryans are supposed to have come into India, you again find horse bones in meager places. But now that becomes evidence for them that Aryans brought the horse. So you see, this is not uh, logical. And all those who are accepting this argument and going by that are just being fools. So it is time for Indian scholars to sit down, prepare a list of horse bones at every period of Indian history including from 1500 to 1000, 1000 to 500 BC, 500 BC to the end of the, uh, you know, from uh, uh, where the CE AD era starts and so on. And then we, we can answer the uh, question of when horse bones are found in India. But the, the way it is going on, we don't have to ask them for any proof. They don't have to provide any proof. They just set the agenda and we grovel before them or bleat before them that no, 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 this is the case. So now it is time for them to produce and for us to examine the full data showing the trail of horse bones from the steppes to Central Asia. That is, you know, they don't claim that the horses, you know, jumped from the steppes directly into India, into the Rigvedic uh, India. They claim that they moved all the way. They migrated from the steppes of South Russia, Ukraine to Central Asia. Then from Central Asia, they migrated into the Punjab, where the Rigveda was composed. After that, they migrated into the whole of North India along with the Vedic people who spread everywhere. And then after that, they are found all over India. That is their theory. So they have to show the full data showing the trail of horse bones from steppes to Central Asia. Secondly, they have to show the data on horse bones in the Bactria Markiana archaeological complex in Central Asia. This is a archaeological complex covering the Bactria Margana areas of Central Asia. And this is very important because according to all the, uh, according to the Aryan invasion theory, this is where the Indo-Aryans and Iranians jointly stayed for a long time in which they developed a particular culture. They already came with the Indo-European culture, but then they developed a particular culture which is found only among Indo-Aryans and Iranians. 
and they they developed that in the bmac and witzel and other such scholars have sat down and prepared lists of words in the rigveda which they claim are bmac words of course i have shown from the linguistic point of view and the textual point of view how fraudulent this is because all these words which they say bmac words which apparently the vedic and iranian people got before the rigveda and avesta were composed they are found in the rigveda only in the new rigveda or they are not found in the rigveda at all they are found in the atharva veda or later texts and yet they tell us these are pre rigvedic words borrowed from the bmac in central asia when the indo aryans before they entered india and uh, thirdly uh, the previous one i think still and uh, finally they um, so uh, and yet the thing is that so here they have already lost the argument because you read any report about the bmac archaeological complex the bactria margana no horse bones are found there in spite of that they insist that this is where the indo iranian stayed with their horses and chariots when they were entering india then secondly as i already pointed out we have to ask for full data separately on each 500 year period from 1500 bc onwards when the aryans are supposed to have entered india next now hans hock uh, this is the next one yeah okay yeah and all this data must not only show a sudden massive presence of horse bones that they should show that there were no horse bones or there were very few horse bones before that and after that there is a massive uh, store of all these horse bones in the archaeological sites but it should also be according to the alleged time schedule of the aryan entry into india and the step by step spread into the interior areas that is some somewhere they point out horse bones after 1500 bc in karnataka somewhere in uttar pradesh somewhere in madhya pradesh somewhere in uh, baluchistan that is not sufficient it has to show their step by step spread into the interior areas from outside from the central asia it should be found first in central asia then it should be found in swat area then it should be found in the indus area then it should be found in haryana then it should be found in the interior then only we can accept that there was a trail of horses being brought into india by aryans but as i said there are no compulsions on them they just have to state their uh, dogmas and we have to listen that is their idea which is actually accepted by many people surprisingly now until all this evidence is produced presented and examined there should be a complete moratorium on any discussion or debate on the question of horse bones in india as an item of evidence for the theory that aryans first brought the horse into india after 2000 bc until this evidence is produced horse bones are totally irrelevant in the debate we cannot allow them to you know uh, run roughshod over us over with such nonsense next now did aryans introduce the horse into india now there are many names for fruits and other such things which you must be thinking are indian names ananas papaya chikku in karnataka it is known as sapota i realized when i went to my native place then potato or batata tomato or tomato tobacco or tambaku cocoa cashew or kaju guava chili but these are not english or indian names they are all derived from native american names for the products because all these things came from the americas they are not indian fruits or indian vegetables or indian products all these things came from the americas and they came with their names now chai or tea 
all over the world in hindi we say chai i think in, in the south some people also say tea certainly in english we say tea and all over the world wherever tea is drunk you find either they say chai or they say tea or variants of these two names now these also not indian or english names or not from any other language they are chinese names for the product which originally came from china now after that we know that there is such a thing as indian tea and china tea because the britishers you know they searched in assam and they found an indian subspecies native to assam and they developed it into indian tea so today we have indian tea but it was started only during the british era it was uh, developed and uh, you know uh, grown before the, and now it is i believe in many places it is more popular than china tea also nevertheless it is chinese who gave us the product as well as the names now coffee or kaffi is a late import from west asia although it is a native of africa it came to us through west asia and the name that derived from the arabic name kahwa you know in uh, uh, kashmir also they have a drink called kahwa i don't know if they actually use a uh, coffee in it but uh, it's a drink it is the same name kahwa originally it was used for a kind of wine later it was as coffee entered from africa into arabia that name was transferred to kahwa and then it became coffee and etc in other names or in other parts of the world now the word pepper is derived from the indian word pippali which did not mean this pepper it meant long pepper this pepper is known as miri as you all know but when it spread all over the world somehow it, they took the word pippali as pepper which is an indian word now if the aryans brought the horse into india which is such a major basic argument of the aryan invasion theory then the name for the horse in the non indo european languages of india should have been borrowed or derived from the vedic or sanskrit or other indo european names this is pure logic is it so now the vedic and later sanskrit words for horse are ashwa arvant or arva haya vajin sapti turanga kilvi prachalaka etc etc as you know in classical sanskrit all kinds of fancy like you will get 100 words for water 100 names for fire because the sanskrit people uh, in classical sanskrit you know development of new words was the uh, more uh, common uh, activity now these are none of these words have been borrowed by dravidian languages they have their own words kudire ivuli pari and ma not one of which is borrowed from these sanskrit words austric languages have a word called sadom now in fact this word was back borrowed in was not back borrowed i mean borrowed in later sanskrit to mean a horse rider but it was it is known that it is borrowed from the because it is a very late word borrowed in the santali areas this word is a santali uh, uh, word i think sadom now modern indo aryan languages except the archaic sinhalese language which has the word asua which comes from ashwa you see i have all throughout my books and articles i have pointed out that sinhalese is a very archaic language sometimes it shows exhibits features linguistic features which are even older than what we see in sanskrit like for example the word for water from the basic word indo european word uda which you have like sanskrit uh, sanskrit uda which with suffixes udaka uda udan etc in uh, russian it is voda from which vodka is also derived from the word voda for water now like that uh, uh, all the uh, sinhalese is the only language which has preserved a very old form of the word vatura which is like english water and hittite vatar only these three language i mean not three the germanic languages 
of which english is one then the sinhalese language and the hittite language they have preserved this word also sinhalese in my article on uh, new, the number systems i have shown that it preserves an older form older stage of decimal numbers than all other indo european languages it is on only tokharian and sanskrit which uh, preserve this it is the second stage the third stage is found in all the other 11 branches 10 branches and the fourth stage is found in nor modern indo aryan languages but sinhalese and tokharian the earliest migrants from india they have preserved the second stage in sanskrit also is the second stage but because of inflection you can't make out but nevertheless that shows how archaic sinhalese is now this that language has preserved this word asua but all other indo aryan languages have words derived from a late sanskrit word ghotaka now actually many people linguists have alleged that this is a non aryan word so you see the aryans came from outside they brought the horse into india where no one knew about the horse and then they borrowed the word for horse from the local languages does this make any logic is this something that has any parallel in any other movement of animals or uh, you know uh, plant products from any part of the world to any other part so you see linguistics completely rejects the idea that the horse was brought into india by the aryans or indo europeans now witzel even witzel points out that the indo aryan and dravidian words for horse are quite different from each other and he actually says obviously use of horses is not linked to speakers of an indo aryan language now i don't know how he used this sentence because elsewhere he claims that the indo aryans brought the horse into india now the encyclopedia britannica in its 15th edition uh, says it is precisely in those regions that used iron and were associated with the horse that the indo aryan languages did not spread even today these are the regions of the dravidian language group now i i cannot explain this i'm just quoting it it is there in the encyclopedia britannica now is ashwa does ashwa mean horse see the whole question arises because throughout the rigveda you find the word ashwat many times another thing is you find this word in all the branches of indo european languages now now uh, if uh, this these are the two arguments which i used to say that the indo europeans brought the uh, uh, horse into india because see as i said just a product because it is come uh, belongs to a certain area it cannot be the basis for a claim that a certain language family went from that area which is what they are doing in ca case of the indo europeans but in the case of the indo europeans their special arguments are that it uh, wherever the indo europeans were when they were together they had this word because all the branches have this word derived ashwa or ekus or related words and secondly in the rigveda right from the beginning this word is there which shows that the uh, rigvedic people were acquainted with the horse from the very beginning so obviously which means they came with the horse if they came from outside and uh, that is their argument now the question is does the word ashwa as well as the word ekos the reconstructed original proto indo european word ekos from which it is supposed to be derived does it originally mean the northern horse but this is only a presumption of the steppe homeland theory there is nothing there is no proof that it referred to the horse 
the word originally referred to any equid animal as the genus name equus and the word equid still do in zoological and general terminology equus ferocus is the horse equus hemionus is the onager equus asinus is the donkey so you see the word equus is in zoological terms it is used for all the these animals including also the zebras of africa and uh, in general terminology we refer to all of them as equids as we say bovids for all kinds of uh, you know uh, cattle like animals so equid is a general term and now why only in the question of this when discussing the indo european question do we insist that ashwa equis means only this one particular species of horse this is because it is a presumption of the step homeland theory it is you know it's a circular argument because horses are native to the step homeland so that proves that the since all the indo european languages know it it means they came from there therefore the word which they know has to be referring to that horse that is the circular argument but the proto indo europeans in the homeland were familiar with the horse but they were also familiar with other equid species the onager and the wild ass whether that homeland is in the steppes or whether it was in india they were acquainted with all these see in india they were familiar with equus ferus because the contiguous if you have read my books and articles you will see that already by pre rigvedic times the indo certain indo european branches had already spread out to include the horse rich areas of central asia where the druhyu groups the uttar madara that is hittites and uttar kuru were located as also the later indo european later european branches the five branches which later migrated to europe from the north through the steppes they were also very much present in central asia in by pre rigvedic times so obviously since all these people were contiguous to each other they were passing words from one to the other and developing words in common so the animal which was there in central asia had a common name now even as per accepted wisdom the earliest domesticated horses found not in ukraine you know they constantly talk about ukraine that the uh, indo aryans came from the ukraine bringing the horse but the oldest horses found not in ukraine but at botai in kazakhstan which as the crow flies i should say is almost equidistant from afghanistan and ukraine you look at it on the map it is to the north of central asia kazakhstan and botai is not at the very westernmost end it is somewhere to the in the eastern half to the northern uh, to the north of the eastern half of kazakhstan and if you look at it it is almost equidistant from afghanistan and the ukraine of course you can say that both afghanistan and uh, both kazakhstan and ukraine are in the northern equid zone also that there is no mountain that they have to cross you can make these two arguments nevertheless these arguments do not explain how it could have the horses could have moved from botai to ukraine and then been brought by aryans from there into india all the way and yet horses could never have come to central asia and afghanistan before that because area distance wise it was not that great why did the horses only move in one direction as per newer findings the first domesticated horse could have been even closer than kazakhstan now there is this paper by lasota moskalevska it is a, a lithuanian team of archaeologists which excavated this site called a uh, 
Ayaka Gitma in uh, Uzbekistan in Central Asia. Look at the map. Uzbekistan is just above Afghanistan, far to the south of Kazakhstan. Kyrgyzstan Kazakhstan, uh, and uh, Uzbekistan are to the south of uh, Kazakhstan. So, and below them is Afghanistan. So just in the above the border of Afghanistan, you find this place, which according to this play, uh, paper has the earliest domesticated horses. And these horses are found as far back as 6000 BC. Now, if to the north of Afghanistan, domesticated horses in whatever state of domestication, because, you know, some people argue that they may not have been fully domesticated. They must just have been keeping them for their horse and hides. Uh, for their hides and milk and flesh they may not have been using them maybe not in 6000 bc but you mean the vedic people by 3500 bc could not have been knowing these wherever the indo-european people were there but if they were there in india as per the oit they would not have been acquainted with these animals which have been there in uh, uzbekistan since 6000 bc that calls again calls for a leap of imagination and faith now now the Rigvedic, uh, so this, the Rigvedic Ashwa originally referred to both the Onegar or wild ass as well as to the superior horse of the lo north locally familiar to the Druyus who had spread out into Central Asia in pre-Rigvedic times. Now as in Mesopotamia, the Onegar was probably commonly harnessed to the cart chariot in the Vedic Harpan, Harappan areas along with the oxen. Now some people deny, they say that uh, Onegar is could not have been, but we really do not know because if bones, Onegar bones are supposed to be found in the Harappan sites and we know from Mesopotamian evidence that Onegars were used after oxen to pull the carts, then there is no logical reason to believe they were not used in the Harappan sites. But at the same time, as the Rigvedic data shows, the northern horse was also known as a rare prized and superior animal imported through the northwest from Central Asia. It was rare. No one claimed that Aryans had brought it with them. The Aryans already composing the Rigveda treated it as a distant animal from the northwest which they were importing or which was rare for them. It was not their animal. It was an outsider animal which they were importing from the northwest. It is only in the new Rigveda. Uh, for those who are not aware of this, I have shown in all my this, uh, articles and uh, books that the Rigveda is divided into two parts. The old Rigveda, which consists of five books. You know, the Rigveda consists of ten books. Now, five of these books, six, three, seven, four, and two, in that order, are the old books. They constitute the old Rigveda, which was composed early already as a text. Then, after a gap of a few centuries, Again, the composition started and then we get the new Rigveda books 5, 1, 8, 9 and 10. Because of the gap in between the two, there is a massive new vocabulary which is found only in the new Rigveda and it is not found in the old Rigveda. Now, I have written an article on this, the chronological gulf between the old Rigveda and the new Rigveda. Anyone who is interested can go into that and see how massive the evidence is. You know, every single hymn in books 8, 9 and 10 and a majority, overwhelming majority of the hymns in books 5 and 1, that is all the 5 new Rigveda books are covered by these new words. Whereas all the 5 books of the old Rigveda are completely lacking in these words. So 
new rigveda is completely different from the old rigveda in chronology and also in geography but i will not uh, that uh, point i will not deal with now but it is only in the new rigveda we will see that the northern horse came to be increasingly used with chariots especially the new spoke wheel chariots but still it was mainly used only for racing war chariots came into use mainly around 1500 bc when horse chariots became common everywhere including in greece and west asia and in the mahabharata you know in the mahabharata horse chariots are used in war we know all about it because krishna was the charioteer for arjuna karna was adopted by a charioteer and of course we know the famous scene of krishna lifting up the spoked wheel to attack bhishma because he feels that uh, arjuna is not uh, uh, being uh, you know form about uh, fighting because uh, bhishma is his grandfather so because of all this we know that it was a solid part of the mahabharata ethos but it is not a part of the rigvedic ethos because nowhere is there any reference to battles in the battles uh, using horses or chariots in the rigveda they could not have used the manually uh, ridden horses you know mounted horses because they did not exist then they came after 1000 bc but they do not refer to chariots also in the context of war you see for example the uh, whatever wars especially the dasharadhne battle etc there is absolutely no reference to horses uh, in the battle first when sudas reaches the two east, eastern most rivers of the punjab it is used for traveling transportation he goes to the uh, rivers in the horse on the in the horse chariots but afterwards when the actual battle takes place there is absolutely no no reference to horse chariots being used in the war or in any other battle in the rigveda now you will see that there are two horses in the rigveda which are personally named deified or glorified other horses don't have names they are just general horse but these two have names dadikras and tarkshya now they are identified with the trikshis of the northernmost swat area these trikshis were not vedic aryans because i have shown that vedic aryans were only the purus whereas the yadus turvasus anus druhus and ikshvakus were not vedic aryans they were other indo european people situated to the north northwest east and south of the vedic people and the vedic people were in haryana and western uttar pradesh now these trikshis were actually the ikshvakus who were actually in the east in bihar and eastern uttar pradesh however i have shown it in detail in my article on the ishwakus in the rigveda one branch of the trikshis in uh, puranic pre rigvedic times they uh, the king mandhata migrated to the moved to the west to help his puru relatives in war and then he when he came back to ayodhya he left uh, back to his homeland in the east he left one dynasty in the northwest which settled down in the swat area so it has kings like famous vedic kings like purukutsa trasadasyu and um, others uh, who are very eminent and prominent in the rigveda and uh, they are mentioned in the puranas as ikshvaku kings but they are not mentioned in the eastern texts like the ramayana in the dynastic list because they were not eastern kings they didn't even know them because they were the kings belonging to a branch which had migrated to the northwest now both these they was the northernmost of the indo uh, european people who are friendly with the 
purus now the ikshvakus are trikshis as they were called and both these horses are identified with the trikshis see dadikras is identified with trasadasyu and tarksya by the name itself traksha means belonging to the trikshis or originating from the trikshis so the only two horse horse race horses known are from the swat area not belonging to the purus but belonging to non purus of the northwest now the horse is also associated with the northwestern soma areas i have shown in detail that the soma areas were not part of the vedic areas they were far to the west in fact when sudas first started his conquest westwards his aim was to reach the soma areas and to import the soma into the vedic areas this is like you know the europeans wanted to find a route to india to so that they could take the spices directly instead of doing it through intermediaries so that is what sudas was doing till then the soma areas were outside the vedic area don't very well known to them no the areas were not known to them only soma was known to them and the areas became known to them and familiar to them only in the new rigveda now this horse is associated with those areas and there is one bhrugurushi dadhyanch who is supposed to have introduced the secrets of soma to indra and he is supposed to have the head of a horse so you see horses as associated again with the northwestern soma areas now horses are rare and prized animals in the old rigveda so rare that sudas is presented with horse heads as tribute by defeated tribes in the dasharatna battle there is no reference to horses as in the battle but it refers to ajas shigrus and yakshus bringing horse heads as tribute to sudas now will anyone give the head of an animal as tribute to a, a victorious king unless that horse head was so precious that it was considered some kind of a treasure so it was a rare animal now personal names with ashwa only appear in the new rigveda i am showing this afterwards when i am showing the names with the ratha next next again now another interesting thing is that there are two distinct aspects of the post rigvedic horse sacrifice which are found in two different parts of the rigveda now any of you have read any of the puranic or ramayana or other stories about the or even the post rigvedic vedic uh, uh, descriptions of the in the brahmana texts or anything actually the uh, uh, yashvamedha as it is called has two different parts the first is a king releases a horse into neighboring countries whoever tries to capture the horse he has to do battle with the king who releases the horse and if he doesn't if he captures it he has to fight with the king and if he allows the king uh, horse to move through his kingdom then the king who releases the horse who performs the ashwamedha he becomes the sovereign over that kingdom now why will anyone try to capture a horse if a horse enters into any area do you think people the king will try to capture it as if it is some rare this thing obviously this means that the horse was so rare that it was a rare and coveted animal and if a horse entered into the kingdom then the kings would try to capture it or they would accept defeat if they couldn't so this is the only aspect found in the old rigveda because sudas releases a horse the word ashwamedha is not released uh, referred used he just releases a horse at the start of his sacrifice now everything else connected with the actual ritual horse sacrifice is found only in the new rigveda by which time horses from the northwest were more easily available that is hymns 
1.162-163 describe the actual ritual horse sacrifice. Then 10.157-123 has the three verses, the last mandala of the Rigveda has the three verses which are recited at the sacrifice. And the word Ashwamedha itself, although as a, only as a personal name, it is found only in books 5 and 8. So it is found only in the new Rigveda, all these things. So which shows that the horse was not common during the old Rigveda, but it had become common during the new Rigveda. So the word Ashwa, referring to the horse, wherever the word Ashwa occurs in the Rigveda, it does not mean it is referring to the horse. It could refer to any equid animal. Now we come to wheeled vehicles in the Harappan sites. Now, if you read any encyclopedia or something, you will find that they refer to uh, wheeled vehicles being found somewhere in the steppes or being found in uh, Sumeria. And as I said, in Sumeria, the date is 3500 to 3350 BC. The oldest uh, specimen is found. Now, see what uh, M.J. Mark Kenoyer, one of the top archaeologists who uh, excavating the Indus sites, he says. Now, I'm giving his full quotes, which you can read at leisure because they are so important and crucial. Now, he says wood remains are not preserved. So that is why we don't find actual chariots or uh, ca uh, carts, but uh, carts actually, I mean, wheeled vehicles. But the evidence for wheeled vehicles comes from terracotta and bronze models. And in that you find both heavy and light wheeled vehicles. That is what you could call based on their weight. You could call them carts or chariots. And then there's a wide range of cart types. And there is a diversity in the carts and wheels, including depictions of what may be spoked wheels. He does not directly go to enter into any controversy, but he points out that they uh, seem to be depictions of spoked wheels. Now, about the lighter form of carts, he says some of them are quite small and may represent vehicles that were used by a single rider for racing or fast transport. So, practically, what is called a chariot in case of Mesopotamia. You read any encyclopedia, chariots in Mesopotamia or Sumeria, and you see that those chariots are not spoke to wheeled chariots. They are just light vehicles with solid wheels to begin with. And yet they are called chariots because they are light and speedy. So in that sense, these are also, whether they had spoke wheels or not, they are still chariots. Now he says the diversity of model cards is quite significant and he gives a long list of different types if you read that article wheeled vehicles of the indus valley civilization he gives a many types of carts which are there now he says this diversity is very significant and it is unclear why scholars have ignored the complexity and specialization of indus transport now we know why they have done it he cannot say it next Now, the earliest wheeled vehicles were developed in an alluvial plain, but it was in the Indus Valley itself rather than in Central Asia. At Harappa, we find evidence for the use of terracotta carts as early as 3500 BC during the Ravi phase. That is, Ravi is the, in the very center of the Punjab, where the Dasharadni battle took place at uh, uh, actually. Now, there, as early as 3500 BC, you find evidence for wheeled vehicles, which is at least as old as or even older than the wheeled vehicle found in Sumeria. 
Now, during the later Harappan phase, 2600 to 1900 BC, there was a dramatic increase in terracotta, terracotta and cart and wheel types, including depictions of what may be spoked wheels. So you see, spoked wheels appeared as per the terracotta cart and wheel uh, models that we have in the period 2600 to 1900 BC. The unique forms and the early appearance of carts suggest that they are the result of indigenous development and not diffusion from West Asia or Central Asia as proposed by earlier scholars. And again, he writes the result of that this is the result of indigenous processes and not the result of diffusion from mountainous regions to the West. So you see, it is the Harappan areas which developed the cart and probably the spoke wheel carts, chariots also. Now, AIT is, is the uh, Ratha, the Ratha in the uh, Rigveda, does it mean spoked wheel chariot? Because you know, everyone says Ratha is found right from the oldest parts of the Rigveda to the latest parts. So which means, you know, transposing the present meaning to the past, it means that spoked wheel chariots were used throughout the Rigveda. Is this a fact? We have to examine this in detail. Now see what uh, Hawk says, for example, he says the use of the domesticated horse spread out of the steps of the Ukraine and so did the horse-drawn two-wheeled battle chariot and these features spread into India along with the migration of Indo-Aryan speakers. Now Vidjal also says the horse and the spoked wheel chariot via the BMAC area, see again this BMAC area which has no horse bones. So via that area they entered into Northwest and South Asia is what Vidjal says. Now let us see what the actual Rigvedic evidence says. Yeah, next. Now, apart from the fact that such chariots, spoked wheel chariots, could not possibly have crossed all the way from Ukraine to the Punjab over so many mountainous terrains, which itself is absurd. But the thing is that not a single such chariot belonging to the alleged immigrating Indo-Aryans has yet been discovered anywhere, whether on the route to Central Asia or in Central Asia or in the Vedic Harappan areas or anywhere else. In fact, right now the Sanoli chariot, which was discovered, which is around 1900 to 2000 BC, it has been discovered for the first chariot which has been actually found. And it is found not anywhere along the route from anywhere to India. It is found in, not even in Haryana, it is found in western Uttar Pradesh to the east of Haryana. So this is the only chariot which has been found. Certainly no such chariot is found brought by Indo-Aryans from outside. And even for quite some time after the intervention of invention of spoked wheels, this word could have meant only wheeled vehicle and not two spoked wheel char horse chariot. Now, the proof for this is firstly, this, as you know, everything has to be compared with other Indo-European branches. Now, this word, Ratha, is not an isolated word. It is found in four other branches, Celtic, Italic, Germanic and Baltic. In all these four languages, it means only wheel or cart. Cart, it means specifically cart. And it is only now, in hindsight, that people assume it means chariot. Because in later Sanskrit, once you know the Mahabharata made the chariot such an important part, it became the word for spoke wheel chariot. Next. Now, in the old Rigveda, there is no separate word for cart. 
now cart obviously came before the chariot under any circumstance and carts are found everywhere in excavations so there should have been a word in the rigveda for the cart but in the old rigveda there is actually no separate word for cart ratha is found everywhere so obviously it is a just means wheeled vehicle it does not mean cart as uh, as opposed to wheeled uh, to chariot or chariot as opposed to cart or spoke wheeled vehicle as opposed to solid wheeled vehicle or four wheeled vehicle opposed to two it doesn't mean any of these things it simply means wheeled vehicle so it is only in the new rigveda that there is a word called anas which specifically means a cart now this word anas is found thrice in the old rigveda also but in two cases it does not refer to actual human carts it refers to the divine vehicle of ushas you know when the sun rises ushas the goddess of dawn when she appears suddenly over the horizon it is as if you know we all know that everywhere the imagery is of a horse chariot or a chariot of some kind of the sun so this is the vehicle of ushas dawn and the, if you see the root of this word it comes from the root an which means to breathe so nothing to do with horse uh, with chariots or vehicles it means to breathe therefore indicate it indicates the first breath or the birth of day when ushas rises the first day has come into being and secondly from the same root after you get the word anala which means fire so you see the rising fire over the horizon that is what this word anas actually referred to in the old rigveda however in the old rigveda in one hymn 3.33 now this is not included among the redacted hymns but as i said there are rare occasions where new words occur in other hymns and this hymn 3.33 has many signs of lateness as many uh, scholars have pointed out but the point is that here the word anas is used with the word ratha compulsorily it is not used by itself because by itself it would have meant something else so it is used with the word ratha to show its new extended meaning of cart and what it problem means is that at this time in this hymn which of course is referring to sudas moving towards the rivers easternmost rivers of the punjab it is where this is where you find the reference to anas and ratha so the anas is the cart where all the provisions and uh, other material is kept and the ratha is used for the actual horse on uh, chariot or cart on which the uh, rider is riding because these are the two uses of the cart there are lighter wheel lighter carts without necessarily having spoke wheels which are ridden by people and there are the heavier carts which are used for carrying heavy um, the, now when sudas and his army was proceeding they did not just walk empty, go empty handed they had plenty of carts which carried all their material with them all their uh, whatever material they required in their uh, movement now it is only in the rigveda that it is found 10 times eight times with a specific meaning of cart and two times as the divine vehicle of dawn again that old idea is repeated so you see throughout the rigveda there is no distinction between cart and chariot the word ratha stands for both next now the sp uh, spoked wheel clearly originated after the 
different indo-european branches had separated from each other now these people say you know that uh, aryans came from ukraine with spoke wheel chariots but this is so ridiculous it goes against linguistic logic because and uh, even jim mallory accepts that this uh, this cannot be possible because there is no common word for spokes in any of the 12 branches now see how do i distinguish between uh, solid wheels and spoke wheels spoke wheels were were a very important development which made the vehicles very fast now it made the vehicles move 5 4 5 times faster than with solid wheels so um, what is the main ingredient of the spoke wheel is the spokes so if there is no reference to spokes it's just a reference to wheel how can you assume as these western scholars do that they had spoke wheels and suppose the entire rigveda has no reference to spokes and even afterwards there is no word meaning spokes then you can say maybe they didn't have a word for spokes they just used spoke wheels treating it as just one item you know the wheel with spokes and they just called it chakra but no there is a word for spokes in the rigveda it is ara now this ara word is not found in any of the other branches greek has a different word the avesta has a different word which shows that you know the spoke wheel was invented after these branches had separated from each other and had stopped developing common words so although the spoke wheel rapidly spread everywhere it was given different names by all the languages whether latin or greek or avestan or sanskrit now as tripet puts it in his book the first horseman just where the spoke wheel originated no one knows but however we know see as we know we just saw from 2600 to 1900 bc the model cuts in the harappan area actually showed depict spokes secondly the rigveda is the only text in the world which clearly shows the distinction internally between two chronological periods an earlier period without spokes and a later period with spokes therefore it is clear that the spoked wheel was invented in the rigvedic period and within the rigvedic geographical horizon that is from haryana to afghanistan though not necessarily by the vedic people the purus but it was invented in their area now the uh, what is the proof for all this the spoked wheel chariot appears only in the new rigveda and its appearance clearly heralds a new cultural phase in the vedic culture firstly spokes are mentioned only in the new rigveda see in books 5 1 8 and 10 that is in the new rigveda now is it just a vehicle which is there and accepted no they refer somewhere to this being inventing by someone the bhrugus and the anus are credited with inventing the chariot for indra now this may show the direction of movement of innovations concerning the horse and the chariot and even the original cart it may have been invented in the more western parts of the indus area and this the inventors were the bhrugus and the anus that is the what later became the ancestors of the proto iranian but at that time they were indian tribes to the west of the purus now this bhrugus and the anus are credited with inventing the chariot for indra nowhere else is it mentioned that anyone has invented the chariot next now names with ashwa and ratha see once the chariot came into being it became a very important vehicle now names with ashwa and ratha 
either beginning with ashwa or ending with ashwa or beginning with ratha and ending with ratha appear among composer names in the rigveda only in the books of the new rigveda signifying a sudden sea change in the importance of horses and horse drawn chariots in the period of the new rigveda which was not there in the old rigveda they appear in the composer names of the following hymns see 5 1 8 9 10 again only in the new books next now these are the composer names before each hymn you get the composer name of that hymn now names with ashwa and ratha appear within the hymns of the rigveda also in certain verses within the hymns but again it is only in the books of the new rigveda and in one redacted hymn they appear as follows see one redacted hymn in book 4 and then you find it so many times in books 5 1 8 9 10 now if you come to that uh, hymn in uh, the redacted hymn also if you see i have spoken uh, given about the varshagira battle now in this battle this is the battle which is referred to in this hymn now in th- this hymn refers to arna and chitraratha so this name chitraratha is the only name in the old rigveda but in a redacted hymn which refers to a name with ratha however this name is also found in the avesta where this same person is called manush chitra and manush means he is not a iranian he is a vedic aryan because according to the iranian uh, tradition manu is the ancestor of their enemies the vedic aryans and yama is the ancestor of the iranians so the, he, this chitra his name was chitra he specifically referred to as manush chitra that is the vedic aryan chitra person named chitra now in this hymn he is given the suffix ratha now obviously that suffix is given just to fit in with the meter i assume because it is a redacted hymn and by that time many names with ratha had come into being so it was added to that but we have the original name as chitra in the avesta and in any case this is a redacted hymn so you again see that names with the ashwa and ratha appear only in the books of the new rigveda next now spoked wheel chariots appear in west asia around 1800 bc now it cannot be a coincidence that their appearance in west asia coincided coincided with the appearance in west asia of the mitanni people who migrated from india the elephant which was an indian animal the zebu or indian cattle and the peacock these are diff- different topics each of them if you examine the this thing you will see these appeared in west asia only in the period from 2000 bc or so slightly before 2000 bc onwards when the mitanni must have been moving into west asia from india now uh, this spoked wheel chariots also appear after that in 1800 bc we have the first spoked wheel chariot uh, actual recorded uh, record of spoked wheel chariots in west asia now the mitanni left india in the period of the new rigveda when horse racing was common but war chariots had not yet acquired prominence till the time of the mahabharata now strangely the mitanni are most well known in west asia or in to historians and indologists and vedic students for a manual on the training of horses for racing 
so you see they took the horse racing uh, tradition into west asia so what they took with them must obviously have been spoked wheel chariots unfortunately we have no word for uh, they, we have a very limited vocabulary of the mitani so we do not know what the word for spokes is so we have to assume that the chariots which they took and which were used for racing were spoked wheel chariots because time wise it coincides perfectly as i already showed that uh, from 2600 to 1900 bc is when spoked wheel chariots are depicted in the indus uh, terracotta models now to sum up the whole thing where horses were domesticated has nothing to do with the homeland or movements of indo european peoples and no one has been able to show movements of horses and chariots from the ukraine to india in the required time frames secondly horses in any case were first domesticated closer to home in uzbekistan and kazakhstan carts were independently invented in the harappan areas actually before the west, they were invented in west asia and spoke wheel chariots developed in the period of the new rigveda in a northwestern area within the geographical horizon of the text fourthly horses and spoke wheel chariots are common and prominent as feature features of the rigvedic ethos and culture only in the new rigveda in the old rigveda there are rare items therefore the horse chariot argument is invalid as an argument for the aryan invasion theory i have tried to sum up the whole um, subject as shortly as i could if there are any particular questions that arise in anyone's mind so uh so i actually have a few queries so uh i get that they're not central to your argument because uh, the central piece of your argument is basically about the chronology of the rigveda and where the words for the horse and the chariot are mentioned in the old rigveda and the new rigveda but uh, sir about um uh, uh you started talking about the equus the word equus but aren't animal taxonomical names they were given after carl linnaeus and they were basically invented in the modern taxonomic system in the 1700s so wouldn't no, exactly they were no what i am saying is not that uh, the uh, zoological names were used in ancient times what i am saying is that the same logic which was used by the zoologists which is used by us when we use the word equid that same logic was used by ancient times because that time they did not even have distinct words for these for example in west asia they only had asses or donkeys and onegers so they had names for that and when the horse first came they called it the mountain ass similarly in india we had horses and oneger both horses and onegers we find bones of both as well as whether you accept the bones or not you see that geographically it is extremely unlikely that they could have been completely unacquainted with the northern horse because the druhus had already spread out into that area unless you totally reject everything and just stick to the dogmas that is a different thing you cannot uh, it is as i said you cannot um, convince someone who has dogmas whether it is zakir naik or whether it is the ait scholars or whether it is some missionary who believes in the bible with uh, this thing or even whether he is an indian who believes that the vedas are uh, you know divine texts and uh, have no history all these you cannot argue with a dogmatic person you just have to ignore it so here there is no proof that uh, the equus and there is no other word for uh, donkeys for example or onegers are not referred to the in the rigveda as i said 
the word ratha applied to both carts and chariots throughout the rigveda similarly the word ashwa applies to horses and onegars throughout the rigveda horses and you find the word gardabha and rasabha appear only in the new rigveda after and not for onegars or horses it was for the west asian domesticated donkey which along with the camel had my uh, been was being used in central asia and in the new period of the new rigveda that domesticated donkey of the west you see the uh, onegars once the horse replaced them they were not used anymore but the donkey was used afterwards and this ass or donkey that we use today is not the indian ass wild ass or the indian onegar it is the west asian uh, ass which was domesticated in west asia then it spread all the way to central asia where we have bactrian camels and both bactrian camels and the domesticated ass enter the rigveda in the new rigvedic period so before that there is no separate word for onegars and horses so if you go against all this evidence of linguistics and insist no there must have been onegars but they did not refer to them then uh, i i mean they must have had a separate name for onegars and horses they must have had a separate name for carts and chariots but they never used them then that is i mean untenable another question i had sir when you know you were talking about the distances on the map don't you think the distances yeah. uh as per the mercator projection they could distort it longitudinally as you go further north well, don't you think that would also be a problem no i don't think it's a problem at all because it is a problem you know if you are talking about movement of an animal within 10 15 years or something now here what has happened is these people are claiming that uh, you uh, horses were brought by the aryans from their homeland in the ukraine they don't claim that they set out from the ukraine without horses and then they borrowed them in kazakhstan or something they started using horses after they had entered kazakhstan what they claiming is that the indo iranians brought horses from the ukraine now the earliest domesticated horses are in kazakhstan so if you are same claiming that they uh, uh, the indo iranians came all the way from kazakhstan bringing horses from uh, ukraine bringing horses so this requires a double belief first you have to believe that the horse had spread from ukraine to uh, uh, from uh, kazakhstan to ukraine in the first stage after which the indo iranian spread out from the bringing that horse here yeah but And sir then that uh, what time, is... yeah you have to assume at the same time that this horse had not spread from kazakhstan to afghanistan which is a double assumption or a triple assumption actually and it becomes especially difficult because as i showed newer research has shown that there were horses domesticated horses in kyrgyzstan so the the distance of as you said i don't know what map you can take and then measure whether as i said by whether a crow, uh, the way a crow flies directly or through the actual paths taken to reach that through mountains and other terrain but uh, it is the distance is not so great greatly different from uh, botai to afghanistan and botai to ukraine that you can assume this you know triple migration of horses rather than no. accept the straight distinct that they must have come directly no sir but what if somebody told you in like let's say the case of chengiz khan you know he rode horses from china to europe right what chengiz khan china? he rode china to europe right 
horses went from china to europe in the case of genghis khan right no no genghis khan is someone you're talking about in the last 2000 years or so one much less than 2000 years now what this kirgiz horses are found is 6000 bce long before any indo european discussion starts to the north of afghanistan now mm-hmm. if you are determined to believe that even then the indo europeans who had already spread out the hittites and tokharians were already there and yet none of them knew the horse or if they knew the horse they kept it a secret from other indo europeans to the south with whom they were in contact with whom they were forming a cultural continuum then it's again you are asking for all this is special pleading All right. all right so now sir i'm going to take the questions of the live viewers so i'll go one by one so i'll start from the latest one and then i'll go to the earliest one so uh, so so this is a very specific question so as per the current now here's a problem that they have asked what is the earliest archaeological evidence of horses in india now the problem is even when um, you know the uh, i i and my my the name is completely vasan shinde he had come on my podcast to so the archaeologist yeah. who is the chief excavator in uh, rakhigadi when i asked him he was very honest when he said you know when the when it comes to the debate on horses in india half archaeologists say it is horse bones half archaeologists say it is not horse bone so we even exactly. we don't understand what to say no so, that is just the point i'm making why don't all people sit down and decide instead of you know assuming that no no before they draw a line 2000 bc or 1500 bc they said that the earlier era is pre aryan and the later is pre aryan a uh, post aryan so whatever bones are found pre aryan they must be not horse bones and whatever are found after that must be horse bones and not only do they categorize them like that but even number wise they are not bothering to show that there is a increase in horse bones after 1500 bc or that they are found on the routes showing a migration from west to Uh, into india so all these things you they don't have to prove it at all that is the point the point is that why do we not ask them for that proof we will accept it if they can show all this proof we will accept it but they are not showing any proof they are just asking us to accept without question and without examination that after that there were horses in india and before that there were no horses although the archaeological record shows no no significant difference in the earlier period and the later period all right so they somebody has asked, so somebody has asked you which uh, which is the best source where that you would recommend to read the rigveda if one was comfortable in english and hindi in english and hindi yeah matlab kaun sa anuvad aap recommend karenge see i really don't know what uh, because i i don't know who has translated it into hindi and uh, in english see there are uh, translations by wilson griffith and latest is by this uh, jemison now um, the thing is that uh, all those are you if you compare all the different translation you will see that all of them fall short somewhere or the other they have certain preconceived notions so and the biggest thing is for example where names are translated literally by some people and sometimes literal things are translated as names by some people so and each translator translates it differently so you have to use your uh as i always say vivek buddhi in deciding which of the translators is correct and uh, as i said you know if you actually go through the rigveda you will see a large number of them are liturgical hymns you know praising indra praising or describing a ritual uh, so the soma sacrifice or praising agni 
So most of them out of 1,020 teams, if you read the full Rigveda, you are not likely to get much information. And um, except, except, you know, not much historical information. Historical information is based on certain keywords, where they occur, how many times they occur and what they mean. So that requires a more specialized study. You can't just read a translation and uh, come to know. All right. So another person has asked a question. So, so what is the history of the horse in Odisha? Because where, where you know, they, they, they say the horse is carved out all over the place uh, in temples and etc. But the, I don't know what impact it has to the Aryan invasion theory, but it was my job to ask you the question, although it has nothing to do with the subject because uh, Aryan invasion and the Rigvedic period is far before that. But I just read it out. So this is a peculiar question about the Rigveda. So they say they did Indra ride a horse or an elephant in the Rigveda because if it was an elephant, don't you think the Aryans originated in India as we don't we don't find elephants in the steppes? Does this question make any sense to you? No, we don't find the elephants in the steppes. Because how could they have taken elephants uh, over the steppes into and they did not go as uh, the, but the thing is, you know, in the case of elephants, we have this solid proof that the elephant consists of two parts. One is the actual animal and second is the ivory, which was the most valuable part of the elephant for which, you know, elephants are killed. And the, even today, ivory is removed and taken away. So more than the elephant for trade and right from Harappan times. In my article on the elephant, I have pointed out right from Harappan times, Indian elephant ivory was found is found in archaeological settlements as far away as Portugal. Means it went through the Red Sea and into the through the Mediterranean to the eastern coast of Portugal. So yeah, you see, ivory was the main thing which was taken. Now you see that in the uh, Rigveda, the word ibha, and mm -hmm. later also it means both elephant as well as ivory. It can mean both elephant and ivory. Now uh, up till now, no one knew what was the etymology of this word. But as I have pointed out, the etymology is actually the word. Ribha, derived from the uh, uh, ribha or libha, derived from the root rub or lab, which means to grasp. Now, you know the word hastin for elephant. Hastin means hand because the most special part of the elephant, apart from the tusks, is its trunk. And it is usually named by that trunk. So, hastin means the animal with a hand. That is, the trunk is a hand. It catches things, holds up things, and does things with the trunk. Now, this same characteristic is there in the word ribha. It means grasp. It is from the root grasp. So ribha is the animal which grasps things with its trunk. So exactly the same etymology as hastin. Now this word ribha has given rise to the word ibha. And which proves, see in the Rigveda you already have the prakritic form of the word. Like Krishna becomes Kisna. And so many other words are like that. So uh ribha becomes ibha r becomes e in prakrit among All right. one of the two three prakritic changes now right. in the Rigveda, you find this word is already so old that there is a prakritization of the word and this same word is found in greek in mycenaean greek the word is erpa which again is directly derivable from ribha and in later greek homeric greek it is called elepha from which you got the, get the word elephant. So you see, Erepa and Elepha also derived from the same root ribha. Then the Hittite word Lahpa, 
is also derived from the same uh, root ribha or libha so here is a word which gives the root for this same word for elephant in vedic sanskrit in greek in hittite and in latin the word was ebur ebur is actually original form must have been erbu or rebu you know there is this uh, process by which especially in latin languages you find or uh, like uh, there is the word crocodile in english and in mm-hmm. uh, spanish or italian it is cocodrillo so you see the r shift from the first part of the word to the second part crocodile becomes cocodrillo so in the same way this uh, process has taken place where the r from the beginning has gone behind so ebur was probably erbu or rebu originally which again comes clearly from ribha so all these four related words are from a root which is clearly there in the in uh, sanskrit in vedic uh, in the language now in my article on the elephant i have shown how, how this same uh, root because it also is the root from which you get all kinds of words for trade and uh, the goddess and for wealth uh, to de- dealing with traders and wealth and then uh, lakshmi the goddess of wealth always has elephants beside her beside her so you see uh, there is a whole trail of uh, connections which shows that the word ribal or libha was the root from which the name of the elephant arose and why why is it connected with trade because no one took elephants all the way to portugal by ship they used to take the ivory now when the indo europeans migrated from india they could not take elephants with uh, them everywhere through the north you know those who migrated through the north the hittites the greeks and the latin uh, 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 latin people their ancestors migrated to europe and uh, anatolia through central asia and the uh, north so they could not have carried elephants through that area but they did carry ivory so in their languages the word primarily means ivory now in in the greek language alone because they continued to have contacts with elephants in their uh, greek in greece so that word elephas or elephantas means both ivory as well as elephant all right in so uh, ivory so you see the thing they took with them was not elephants it was ivory mm-hmm. got it got it so somebody yeah, has asked the mitanni so, went into west asia they took elephants with them because they directly went from here across the southern route and elef- uh, mit- uh, elephants appear in west asia at the same time as the mitanni but not only that in egyptian monuments i have give, uh, given this in my article on the elephants the egyptian king is receiving baby elephants because they didn't take huge elephants with them they took the baby elephants with them and the egyptian pharaoh is shown receiving baby elephants from the mitanni people means the people who are giving the baby elephants to the egyptian pharaoh have been identified as mitanni got it now somebody has asked us can you uh, i think we are going to be doing a detailed discussion but i'm just reading out the question and i'm just mentioning it we are going to be doing a separate discussion on this very topic uh, next month or the month after that so somebody has asked can you please talk about the available genetic data and its effect on rn invasion or out of india uh, 
uh, we're going to be covering this in detail in the next uh, presentation about what genetics say or what genetics uh, overall do to the discussion. So I'm going to leave that question uh, here. But there are other questions. So I, I, I have one more question here. So according to few indologists, Ayurveda and Amrit originally was a Bhrigu plus Angirasa invention. And the later uh, the Bhrigu separated. So if this is true, then could it mean that Sanjeevani attributed to the Asuras are Bhrigu's development and the Samudra Manthan actually denotes the distribution of wealth of some land is a question someone has asked. See, I have a, even in my last talk, uh, which I gave to Sangam talks also, I pointed out this that any question concerning Puranic uh, stories has no relevance to the Vedic. Uh, like someone asked me about Manvantara, someone has asked me about Kashyapa Prajapati being the ancestor of the Devas and Asuras and Danavas and human beings. See, all these things are like when you're discussing the history of Israel or of West Asia, you, not, you do not discuss Adam and Eve. Abel and Cain, um, uh, Noah, or Abraham, Isaac, and uh, Ismail. All these do not enter into historical discussions. They dis enter into discussions of biblical or West Asian Semitic Abrahamic mythology. Now, uh, if you are discussing Puranic stories which involve, you know, lakhs of years or which involve, you know, ancestors of all living beings, ancestors of gods and demons and human beings and things like that. They are not really historical topics. They are mythology or else they are cosmology. What is known as cosmology or mythology about time, periods of time, creation. All these things are not historical and we cannot uh, really discuss them. And in, in the Puranas, you know, they took names from the Rigveda and uh, actually in many cases invented stories about them and pushed them into eras where they, those people never lived. Like, for example, Bharata. If you read the Puranic story, you know, Bharata is the son of uh, uh, Shakuntala, through, uh, who is the daughter of Vishwamitra. But we know that Vishwamitra is just a Rishi in the uh, Rigveda. And uh, Bharata's ex were uh, people for whom he was the priest. Or else, mm -hmm. even if you take another thing, in the, Vishwa, uh, Vishwa, in the Puranic stories, you know, Vasishta is the older and more revered as a rishi who was already a brahmarshi and you know vishwamitra is actually a vishwaratha a king who tries to rob his uh, cow and when he discovers the powers of tapasharya of vasishta he decides to become a brahmarshi himself and then you know that long full long story at the end of which he becomes a brahmarshi according to this story you know vasishta and finally vasishta accepts him so in according to this story vasishta is the true original brahman whereas uh, Vishwamitra is actually a Kshatriya who later becomes a Brahmana and all that. However, if you see the Rigveda, you see that Vishwamitra is nowhere found in battle descriptions. He is not a warrior priest at all. Even where he is associated with Sudas, in the first case, he takes Sudas to the rivers and then by his mantras, so by his Brahmanical mantras, he is supposed to quieten the rivers and allow Sudas to pass. Secondly, he officiates at the Ashwamedha Yajna. No, it is not yet an Ashwamedha Yajna because uh, horse is not sacrificed. And that word has also not come into being. But where the horse is released, there is a big ceremony after which the horse, consecrated horse is released. And Sudha starts his conquest east, west and north. So that is done by Vishwamitra. So he is everywhere, you know, connected with Brahmanical rituals. 
even today the only single rigvedic verse which is known to everyone is the gayatri mantra how many other people know how many other verses from the rigveda the gayatri mantra is the only verse known that is composed by vishwamitra and gayatri mantra used, is used while doing the sandhya vandana which is the typical brahmanical ritual done by people after they finish the thread ceremony so you see it is the vishwamitra who is the typical brahmanical rishi in the rigvedic uh, data whereas vasishta is a warrior uh, sort of because the word trichu as used in the battle see i have never uh, uh, referred to that word because according to some people trichus means the bharatas according to some others it means the vasishtas but actually it probably means the combination combination of bharatas and vasishtas during that battle because both of them were participating as warriors although the vasishtas were the priests they were warrior priests and uh, uh, so that word trichus does not occur anywhere uh, after this two three hymns composed by vasishtas which refer to the uh, battles of sudas and vasishta with others so it is vasishta who seems more of a kshatriya and uh, uh, vishwamitra seems more a pure brahman but the puranic stories give us the exactly opposite picture so you see if you go by puranas and try to reconstruct rigvedic history you will end up in complete mess that is what i discovered when i was writing my second book in 2000 the rigveda historical analysis when i tried to uh, analyze the rigveda on the basis of puranic data i ended up in such a mess that i decided to give up the project of analyzing rigvedic history until finally i realized you know let me just ignore puranic history except where it corroborates the vedic data and only concentrate on the rigvedic data and that is why i have managed to do all these analysis of the rigveda by totally ignoring puranic data except where it corroborates the vedic data so i i really uh, i mean i find it quite uh, senseless to you know try to push in puranic uh, try to explain puranic purely puranic uh, concepts and uh, ideas in the vedic framework all right so one more question is there i think the first one we have already covered in the presentation which was in which part of the rigveda is the ashvamedha first mentioned we clarified this in the presentation itself the second question i'll ask you is there any evidence on how how warfare happened before example in the dasharajne war without any chariots and as in does the rigveda talk about how they went about doing the war what did they do what happened what did not happen i think that's what they're saying no see we are uh, i uh, what see right now if you take any incident any story just by mentioning one name as i pointed out in my last talk to the in the sangam talk just the mention of pralada and you know what pralada is what stories are associated with him if it, you mention dropadi uh, krishna saving dropadi you don't have to be told a story you know because it is repeated it is found not only in the mahabharata it is found in countless repetitions in books in all languages ever since so and it is there in kirtans bhajans songs so we know that context however rigveda is the oldest book there is no book older than the rigveda and when the rigveda just mentions something and does not clarify it or give details about it no other later book can give details about it because we don't have any earlier books which give detail so we just have to do with the information in the rigveda so you see what information we get about the dasharadnya we don't get it anywhere else because see no other text 
वेदिक और पुराणिक रिफर्स टू दिस दाशरथ ने बैटल एनी वेर इनफैक्ट विजल इज पॉइंटेड आउट दैट इवन द लेटर वेदिक टेक्स्ट लाइक द ब्राह्मण दे गेट कन्फ्यूज दे इवन डोंट नो द नेम ऑफ सुदास दे कॉल इम बाई डिफरेंट अदर नेम्स लाइक प्रतरदा एंड ऑल दैट दे थिंक इट्स प्रतरदना बिकॉज ही इज कॉल्ड प्रतरदा डिसेंडेंट ऑफ प्रतरदना सो दे इन वन ब्राह्मण इट इज प्रतरदना हुई सपोज टू बी फाइटिंग दिस बैटल ऑल दो इट इज नॉट कॉल्ड दशरथ ने बैटल सो यू सी देर इज सो मच these incidents are just mentioned once or twice and we can de- develop uh, describe its history only based on data in the rigveda where there is no data we cannot make up our own stories all right another person has asked the question would you consider sonoli a vedic that is puru civilization uh, because the location is very close to haryana and if yes was sonoli a corporate civilization and does rigveda mentioned ayas iron 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 and are they in the latter verses uh, i didn't get the question so what they're saying is uh, sonoli the latest excavated site by dr yeah, sk yeah. manjul so do you consider that to be a vedic puru civilization or uh, that is not con- uh, the you you consider to be uh, it to be a uh, something else yeah yeah see it is in the eastern parts it may be a, a eastern puru you know uh, it is definitely in the uh, puru area probably or the yadu area depends upon uh, where exactly sonoli falls it falls in western uttar pradesh now in the dasharadne battle you will see that sudas is fighting eastern purus and yadus and turvasus all on the yamuna on that area in western uttar pradesh so that is the area where the yadus turvasus and the eastern purus especially the kingdom of matsya is mentioned in the battle you know this is the only kingdom referred to the entire uh, which we find in later times it is found in the yamuna in that exact same spot it is in the mahabharata and in the dasharadne battle he is mentioned uh, sudas is mentioned as fighting the matsya people on the yamuna so they were the eastern purus but there were also yadus and turvasus fighting in the same area with uh, sudas so it is either puru or it is some something internal either the yadus or the eastern purus all right so so just so just to clarify on the bharatas so you just mentioned bharatas are the kings whose uh, priest is vishwamitra uh, so uh, but don't the puranas call bharatas the lineage of bharat the son of rishabdev so that would be a slight confusion right uh, incompatibility there right sir rishabdev yeah so the puranas talk about a different bharata so could be the case that the puranas and the rigveda actually talk about two different sets of bharatas no no sometimes they take the same names and they give make up complete stories like i have in my last talk i am repeating it here now i gave the example of uh, indra killing vritra okay uh, can i speak on that for a few minutes sure 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 sir sure yeah so now in rigveda indra kills vritra and that is the big uh, event his main activity is uh, his main feat is he kills vritra and releases the rainfall now what is vritra vritra is pictured as a serpent from the root vr vr that is to uh, encircle and cover so this serpent called vritra is preventing the rainfall it is surrounding the rain clouds completely and preventing the rain from reaching the earth reaching the human be- uh, beings so indra attacks and kills this serpent and releases the rain which falls on the earth so it is a purely nature myth now uh, i have in my uh, 
writings on mythology have pointed out how there are myths which are found in all the many of the branches of indo-europeans but it is only in the rigveda that you find the original nature myth whereas in the other uh, mythologies it has already become anthropomorphized as it is called where they have become people and in the rigveda itself you find this process where vritra becomes the vritras means enemies etc but the original because the rigveda was composed over few thousand years so you see that myth kept on developing within the rigvedic period itself and you find it developed so much that indra is described as vritrahan the killer of vritra and in later times it becomes vritragna now you find this name in the avesta where indra is demon demonized in the avesta but vritragna is the name of the god of victory so you see indra's defeat of uh, uh, vritra is taken as the name of a god of victory in the avesta which does not show direct links with the vedic except in the name and context now in uh, all the other mythologies like in hittite mythology there is a goddess called inara whose connection with indra you can see from the name her big activity is that she destroys the great serpent who was preventing the rainfall then in um, now still that uh, original nature element is still known there that uh, but uh, they have confused the name of the god and the uh, name of the serpent and the way in which that serpent was killed and all that but in uh, greek and uh, german mythology teutonic mythology you find that the great thunder gods that is thor and zeus their main feat is the destroying of the great serpent so you see that myth of in the, uh, the thunder god destroying the serpent which you find in its original nature myth form in the rigveda has become so anthropomorphized that it is now the thunder god killing a huge serpent and there are all sorts of stories about what kind of a serpent it was so you see how it has developed in other mythologies but now if you see the um, later vedic texts and the puranas you see the story has become so much complicated that uh, suddenly vritra is now a man he is created by uh, twashtra in order to destroy indra because indra has killed his son and all kinds of new stories which have no connection with the original nature myth at all they have come into being and then there is some, a brahmanical element added to that vritra is actually a brahmana so because of that when indra kills him indra gets the sin of brahmana hatya because of that he suddenly uh, becomes uh, important he uh, so uh, he is so uh, frightened by this that he goes into hiding then all the gods are leaderless so they say what should we do we require a king so then they go around and then they find nahusha who is a very uh, very virtuous king so they call him and make him the king of the gods but then you i don't know if you know that story about nahusha becomes so arrogant that he starts insulting the great rishis and he finally kicks one of the rishis who are carrying his palanquin because of which that rishi curses mm-hmm. him and yeah. then finally the gods say we must have indra back they go and search him out he's hiding inside a flower or something and then they give him the uh, parts of a ram to make him whole again and then he uh, this story does it have any connection all this about brahman hatya and curses and does it have any connection with the rigvedic nature myth so you see the puranic stories are completely later and extraneous stories which have no connection with the original rigvedic even if the same names are used so it is very difficult to apply them to vedic history 
All right. So, so what you're basically saying is because of the extreme level of interpolations in the Puranas, and uh, yeah. it is if you are going to discuss a subject like Aryan migration, Aryan invasion, and yeah. do any kind of serious scholarship, the level of interpolations. In fact, don't you see a lot of interpolations and latter verses being incorporated into the text like a Ramayana and a Mahabharata too, right? That would be the case with them also, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now. Uh, you know, there are different, some people insist that the Ramayana was composed by Valmiki at the time that the Ramayana actually took place, whatever that date is. Uh, now, I will not speculate about that date, but certainly that date cannot be in the Mauryan times. But the thing is that the uh, Ramayana text was written in Mauryan times. So it refers to Romakas and uh, uh, Yavanas, whom we know are Rom Romans and Greeks. Now, some people, you know, refuse to accept this. They say, no, no, Romakas and Yavanas are not Romans and Greeks. There are some ancient Indian tribes which existed in India at the time of the Ramayana. So then I pointed out that the Ramayana also refers to the Cholas, Cheras and Pandyas as southern kingdoms. So then I said, no, don't tell me that at the time of the Ramayana also these three kingdoms existed because we know they existed only from the time of the Mauryas when the Ramayana was written. So then, and there is actually a verse. Now some people will have simply removed it saying it's an uh, interpolation because it goes too much against their theories and this is that in when Rama goes to the when uh, Bharata comes to the forest to call Rama back when he's uh, going to his vanvas at that time there is a priest called Jabali who comes and tries to persuade Rama to come back and uh, his advice so much angers Rama he says that uh, uh, Charvaka uh, people like uh, those who believe in the principles of Charvaka should have no place in uh, the kingdom. They should be banished by the king. Now, Charvaka is bad enough. Now, we can say Charvaka, did he exist at the time of Ramayana? But you, maybe they'll say that it is just a kind of philosophy. So maybe it existed. But then he also says Buddha, Buddha Tathagata are also, uh, is a, a people who follow him are also thieves. And Buddhists also should not be. Now I tell you, can you can this be possible that this verse was composed at the time of the Ramayana? If that Ramayana took place thousands and thousands of years before the Buddha. So, you know, the, the number amount of interpolations which are there are so many. And of course, at the, as a text of the Mauryan period, it is very important because it gives us the names of all kinds of kingdoms all over the country of the Mauryan period. So to study the kingdoms of the Mauryan uh, all over India of the Mauryan period and probably around that time, it is very useful, but don't take it back to in more ancient times. All right. The Ramayana so, uh, took place, but that story was written down in this form. And then, you know, all kinds of stories were added to it in, in the Mauryan period. The Mahabharata was also finalized in that period. The Puranas were also written in that period. So it is very difficult to take them too seriously. All right. So, sir, one more one more question and we'll wrap it up. So, somebody has asked, are there any lost books in the Vedas? If any, are they alluded to but not found? Are there any? Lost books in the Vedas. And if there are, are they mentioned somewhere? Lost? Them being lost. Lost like Lost books like koi mandal aise hai jo nahi hai, they are not with us, or and are they mentioned? Like, is there any mention within the Vedas itself of any lost mandalas within them? No, no, there isn't. There is, see, that is a favorite 
things of religious people you know i have met muslims who have told me that uh, the vedas and puranas contained a reference to the prophet muhammad it predicted that the prophet muhammad could come and bring islam and you must follow him they said but where is it there in the text so they no no the brahmans removed those verses they say also that uh, this was also mentioned in the bible that muhammad would come with by his name but where is it no it was removed so people you know can say anything that anything was there but it was removed by someone now this rigveda was kept as vidyal uh, uh, has pointed out it was kept alive by uh, almost like a tape recording or an inscription from at least 1500 bc when it was given its final form after that a few words were added a few words and we know which those words are there because the chronology of the rigveda is very uh, you can uh, to certain extent after that what was added you can judge so you see right at uh, at the uh, this text which we have today from 1500 bc till recently till say the colonial period in which it was written down you know the colonial scholars went all over india they went to kashmir they went to tamil nadu they went to gujarat they went to assam and they got the priests who have been keeping this memory alive for thousands of years to recite the rigveda and then they copied it down and they found almost exactly the same text from kashmir to kanyakumari and gujarat to assam and this text has been carried around since 1500 bc at least so which older text and what missing text uh, this thing do we want there isn't then there are all people will say there were a hundred uh, rigvedas and uh, but there is no such thing some people talk of a bashkala samhita but that bashkala samhita is nothing but certain suktas which are known as khila suktas and those khila suktas contain very very much post rigvedic words so no serious scholar ever counts them as part of the rigveda so there is no really rigveda except in popular uh, you know myth that there were uh, 100 rigvedas and 1000 uh, yajurvedas and all kinds of texts are lost there is no such thing all right okay sir so so i guess uh, it's time to wrap it up so but before i wrap it up i would like to once again thank you very much for a detailed presentation and uh, giving your point across and taking our questions as always it is a pleasure talking to you so sir thanks a lot for coming on the podcast thank you all right guys Uh, all right guys time to wrap it up so the so here's the thing we will be doing a couple of more presentations i have requested shrikant sir to prepare a couple of more presentations uh, one on the linguistic case and uh, one on the genetics and shrikant sir is going to be preparing them maybe next month we'll do one more and the uh, another month we'll be doing one more uh, presentation uh as always thanks a lot for watching this stream uh, uh what is very heartening is that now more and more as the podcast keeps progressing we have more and more people getting interested in you know two hour plus discussions so i'm glad that we are kind of creating a culture in india of long form discussions not five minute videos where you know you kind of get a summary of anything these things are not possible these are serious issues and people who are interested in ga- gathering knowledge have to be ready that you will always have to spend a couple of hours to listen to a point 
so i'll wrap up today's discussion as always please subscribe to the channel like the video leave your comments there if you want to buy shrikantalagiri's books i've left a link to buy them of uh, at least if you're in india you can go to aditya prakashan and buy all of shrikanji's books and you can also go and read his blogs i've left the link to the blog also in the description of the podcast uh, i don't know if i can extract the audio because i don't know how the experience would be in the audio version when you extract it without the presentation i might leave it there but I, if if you are to watch this uh, discussion i think i would always say watch it in the video version and at least you have to watch it two or three times please support the podcast become a member of the youtube channel subscribe on patreon you can send donations on upi and also you can buy the charvak podcast merch i will see you guys next time until then namaste take care goodbye